With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Special Operations, Covert Ops, Espionage, The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. All right, here we are, episode 79. I'm Jack Murphy, here with co-host Dave Park. This is the Team House, episode, yeah, I think it's episode 79, and we're here with our guest tonight, Casper. Casper, pronounce your name for me, your last name, before I screw it up, please. Damso. Casper Damso. Okay, so it's just like it looks. Um, so Casper yes. is joining us from Denmark tonight. He is a veteran of the Danish military. He served in one of the most unique special operations units in the world called Sirius Patrol. And I will uh, hand it off to Casper. He has a whole presentation for us tonight. Um, but I'll say these guys work with dog sleds patrolling the Arctic tundra uh, of Greenland. Do, do we want to get his origin story real yeah, quick? And yeah. l- l- like let our uh, viewers get to know you real quick? Yeah, please. So, Casper, yes. if you can just start off telling us a little bit about your upbringing and how you ended up joining the Danish military. Yes, uh, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for letting me on the show tonight. And I'll try to enlighten you a bit about the, the serious uh, patrol. Uh, we operate in uh, northeast Greenland, and uh, Greenland is the big white country on top of the globe, so it's part of the... Um, Deception by layout covert operation. So we name Greenland because it's completely white and it's a, a part of Denmark, even though it's a several thousand kilometers away from uh, Denmark. So uh, the reason why I got interested in, uh, in Greenland was uh, when I lived in Denmark, I always knew I was going to join the, the military. But then uh, my father uh, went to Greenland to work as a police officer in, uh, in Greenland. So when I was like uh, 15 years old, I thought as a great opportunity to combine being a soldier and joining uh, the military in uh, Greenland. But first of all, I have to go back to Denmark. And then I did my um, selection program in Denmark and joined the, the Special Forces. Uh, and then I came back to, uh, to Greenland to join the Sirius Patrol. 
did you already know about the serious patrol or like did you have an awareness of all the different things going on in the military well it was like i was like uh, 14 years old when my dad came into my room and said hey son come out here there's a great show on tv tonight i think that's uh, something just about right for you uh, so I don't know whether it's because my father was so enthusiastic or whatever, but uh, that that TV show just uh, got into me, and I knew that that's what I'm gonna do when I grow up. So you actually grew up in your in some of your teenage years in Greenland, then when your father was stationed over there. Yeah, I we went up there when I was like uh, twelve, and I stayed there for uh, almost four years, and then I came back and went to uh, high school in. Denmark and then uh, joined the, the military and uh, went to Officers Academy and then after that uh, selection program for Serious Patrol and then uh, to Greenland. So if you could just a little bit tell us just for, as far as civilian life is concerned, what was it like living on Greenland? How was that life a little bit different than Denmark or New York? Uh, it was very different. The, the whole uh, area of Greenland is the uh, uh, biggest island in the world. That's also why it's so big on, on the globe and on every map you will see. But it's only like uh, 50,000 people there in, in the total of Greenland. So the, the city I grew up in was like 3,000 people. And, and Sirius operates in northeast Greenland, where there's uh, no uh, local inhabitants. There's only tw 27 people living in northeast Greenland. It's 160,000 square kilometers. I'll get back to that a bit in the, in the presentation, but it was completely different from anything else. You might find a remote area in Alaska that's a bit similar to that, but it's a, it's a long way from everything. You can't, you can't drive from one city to another in, in Greenland, so it's, uh, you are absolutely remotely. Do, does the temperature uh, fluctuate throughout the island, or is it, is it pretty constant uh, everywhere? Oh, it, it's uh, it's absolutely coldest in in the middle of the the country, and then along the coast, you'll have more uh, heat due to the to the sea that, that's uh, hot. But it's uh, down to minus fifty degrees centigrade, so it's uh, like uh, super cold. And if you have a, a blizzard, you get down to minus eighty or ninety. So it's uh, really tough conditions. Oh my goodness. Then, so your dad was a, a police officer in a small town. I, what what's small town like life like in, in Greenland? I mean, from our perspective, it's like why why do people even live there? You're out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's 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 basically what you see in uh, in documentaries and movies. It's a very very small town. Everybody knows uh, everybody, so it's uh, it's. A quite easy job being a policeman because if if, if someone commits a crime uh, you are most certainly sure that someone knows who it was because it's not anyone from outside it has to be one from the inside so it, it's a uh, yeah it was kind of uh, i also used to live in, in new york and we had burgers there jack so it's yeah, I, yeah. you can't get any uh, further away from new york city than a small town in, in greenland it seems like it would be too cold to commit crime <laughs> Like, it wouldn't be worth going outside to commit crime because it's just too cold. Exactly. How did, exactly. You, uh, how did you entertain yourself? I mean, this is before... And then, and then you know it's exciting, so you get a bit heated up. You get what? Oh, yeah, right. Say again. Well, I was... Uh, how did you, as as a you know teenager, how did you entertain yourself considering there was no Netflix at the time or, you know, uh, online video games or anything like that? 
Uh, but there's a lot of nature. I mean, uh, that that's why also I got the hooked on nature, uh, being outside, you know, uh, going hunting, going fishing, do all the kinds of stuff, go skiing, everything that you can do outside. I mean, I was kind of happy that there was no uh, Netflix, no mobile phones and stuff like that at the time, because you had to go outside and play outside. Yeah, that's super cool. So um, do you want to talk about your entry into the military then, uh, Casper, up until the point that you're ready to give your presentation and then we can turn the slides on? Yeah, I, I joined the Ricky Battalion in, in Denmark, so uh, doing a long-range long reconnaissance uh, as a star and uh, went to uh, get my... Uh, uh, sergeant to sergeant school and they came back and worked as a, a, a commander in the uh, rookie uh, platoon and then after that i joined the selection program for the serious patrol okay um would you well actually before we get into like what the selection process was like things like that um casper has uh, actually a presentation for us because almost all of us are unfamiliar with the Danish military and whatnot. And so uh, we can start that. Jack's going to go ahead and uh, blow your screen up so that you can um, share your slides. Okay. There we go. Yes. Uh, uh, so, yeah, so if you want to go ahead and share those, I'll put those up on the screen, Casper. Yes. You can go ahead, Casper. I'm just going to format it here for you so that people can see. Yes, exactly. Uh, thank you very much. Just a picture of a regular patrol here. Uh, I'll start by showing um, where Greenland is actually located. As I just uh, mentioned before, you see you have uh, Russia on the right side of the screen, and then you have United States on the other side. So Greenland is uh, right in the middle. I'll get back to that the strategic position in uh, in a minute. The three uh, key takeaway from my time in this uh, unit, you can say that the pain is temporary, glorious forever. You use also that in many of your units, and I guess that's also one of the things, one of the reasons why we're still sitting here uh, talking. If you can, um, if you can keep yourself together and and go through with this in a, a rather young age, then you can uh, enjoy. Uh, the fruit and the triumph of this uh, for long, for many years to come afterwards. Second thing, it's always good to remember, if it was easy, they would send someone else. I mean, everybody uh, likes to see action movies and everything, and uh, you talk to a lot of people, they would like to try this, but uh, when it gets really uh, shitty out there, you have to remember that if it was easy, everybody else was uh, doing it. And the uh, third thing is that uh, the harder the struggle, the greater the fun afterwards. <laughs> it's not really fun while it's ongoing, but uh, afterwards, while you sit here in your sofa and, and have a beer, then it's uh, really fun to to, uh, to talk about. A bit about myself. I spent like uh, 14 years in the uh, Special Forces in Denmark. Uh, I did a tour in, in Greenland, of course, and then also in Kosovo, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Africa. And after quitting the military, I took a master's degree in uh, psychology. 
and now I was uh, after that I was working with uh, Volkswagen and uh, became a management consultant and uh, now today I work as a managing director making bricks so in the construction business a bit about the the Danish uh, special forces as you mentioned before we have the the serious patrol which is unlike any other special forces we call it the the most special special forces in the world that we know of and then we also have some more regular uh, special operation forces like the the frogmen it's uh, equivalent to the american navy seals and we have the uh, jaegers which is uh, equivalent to the american delta force but uh, in fact the the history of the serious patrol goes uh, way back many in this uh, special forces community would uh, think of the sas from uk as uh, some of the founding fathers of the special forces community but we are proud to say that while the uh, sas was uh, created on july 1st in 1941 the uh, serious patrol was actually created already uh, in april uh, 9th 1941 so we're actually a bit older than the the sas and both the Serious Patrol and the SAS was uh, discontinued in October 1945 because uh, after the Second World War, everybody was uh, thinking that uh, now there will be no more wars, there will be no more need for military in the world. But uh, as we all know, we got a bit uh, wiser during time. So they restored the SAS in 1947 and uh, the Serious Patrol in 1950. So while you may not have heard so much about the, the Serious Patrol, you definitely heard about the, the Rolex. They made some uh, commercials with uh, our unit uh, uh, since uh, the 80s. Uh, there are some different commercials they did uh, together with, uh, with Rolex in the National Geographic magazine. A bit about the, the Serious Patrol. As I said, the, the world's most special special forces. It consists of only six teams of uh, two men and uh, 11 dogs. Wow. We cover 160,000 square kilometers of ice and snow. You run uh, a marathon every day on your skis, like uh, 45 kilometers. Temperature is down to minus 50 degrees centigrade. You have a continuous service for two years and two months with uh, no holidays. You get no visits and you don't get to see your family. And of of course, without the internet and uh, the cell phones, so um, it's a quite uh, a nature uh, adventure. Uh, again, uh, our position uh, right between uh, Russia and uh, America, and that's of course why uh, it has such an important strategic position. And that's also why uh, Mr. Donald Trump tried to uh, buy Greenland from Denmark <laughs> just uh, two years ago. Maybe you heard about that. But he was uh, unsuccessful in doing that. So uh, so we still got to keep uh, Greenland. And here you see uh, a map of uh, Greenland, only uh, 56,000 people in total. And, and the total area of Greenland is uh, 2.1 million square uh, kilometers. And uh, the national park, the total area of the national park is 972,000 kilometers and only 27 men um, is, is living here. So there's no Greenlanders in this uh, whole area. But we don't patrol the uh, the middle, we only patrol the, the coastline. There's 16,000 kilometers of uh, coastline around Greenland. The story about uh, Northeast Greenland is that uh, 
in the early days, in the beginning of last century, uh, there was a lot of Danish and Norwegian trappers and hunters in uh, Greenland. And at some point, some of the uh, Norwegians planted a Norwegian flag and uh, said that now this area is uh, Norwegian. And uh, Denmark uh, complained about this to the uh, International Court of Justice in uh, Hague. And in uh, 1933, it was decided that all of Greenland was uh, Danish. But then uh, Denmark has to commit to uh, put some people up there to, uh, to wave the Danish flag. And then we know uh, we had the, the Second uh, World War, and that was uh, actually quite important in, uh, in Greenland, because if you know uh, the weather in uh, northeast Greenland, you know the weather one day later in the Atlantic Ocean. And of course, as you know, it was a very important um, uh, submarine war going on in the uh, Atlantic, the so-called Battle of the Atlantic. So therefore, the, the Germans launched some uh, weather station in the northeast Greenland. And that's why they, um, they created the Sirius Patrol in the 1941 to go on their dog sleds to uh, try and find these um, German weather station and then... Uh, radio signal to the Americans that would come and, uh, and bump these uh, weather stations uh, away. So there was uh, some small uh, battle going on, some small guerrilla fighting in northeast Greenland, uh, and there are some of the, uh, the first uh, guys in the Sirius Patrol were actually killed during wow. the uh, Second World War in uh, Greenland. As mentioned before, after the um, Second World War, we had the, the Cold War, I have to say that also the, the Second World War was very cold in the Northeast Greenland. But the, during the Cold War, this uh, strategic position came up again. And therefore, they launched um, the Sirius Patrol again. And in the top left corner of Greenland, you have a uh, Thule Air Base that you might uh, mm. have heard of. And uh, back in the 1950s, when they, when they started Thule Air Base, there was only like uh, 25,000 people living in Greenland. And when Thule Air Base was at its uh, highest, there was uh, more than 13,000 people uh, in, in the Thule Air Base, Americans. Wow. They had uh, only one job, and that was to uh, launch all these uh, B-52 bombers launched uh, with uh, nuclear weapons. And they would fly this route you see down there on the slide in the bottom left corner. So they would fly from the northwest corner of Greenland over to Russia. And before um, the B-52 would uh, turn around and go back to Greenland, another B-52 was already launched and on its way to, uh, to Russia, just in case uh, they would start uh, a nuclear uh, fight. So it was, uh, it was cl uh, quite an operation they had over there in the Thule Air Base. What you see on the top right corner is uh, part of the uh, distant early warning system where the Americans uh, put these uh, big radar stations all the way uh, down through Greenland to be able to detect if the Russians would shoot uh, nuclear missiles uh, from Russia to the United States. They would have to fly right over uh, Greenland. So that's why, again, Greenland had this uh, important strategic position. And then on the right uh, bottom, you see uh, Camp Century. Great idea that the uh, that the Americans had to build a city under the ice. Uh, you have the ice cape on uh, Greenland, where it's, uh, it's uh, the ice is the thickest. It's more than three thousand meters uh, thick. So the idea was to uh, to steam your way uh, under the ice cape and build a city and have a nuclear reactor uh, 
within the ice cape, and then you could have uh, ballistic missile systems, and you could just uh, open the ice roof and you could uh, fire missiles uh, towards the the Russians. They actually built this uh, camp under the ice, and they stayed there for a while until they they realized that the ice is constantly moving, and it's not so cool to to living a in a house that's moving when you have a nuclear reactor next door. <laughs> so, uh, so the project was abandoned, but it was actually uh, quite impressive. But uh, that's a whole different story. You can talk for hours about uh, uh, all the crazy stuff that the um, that you guys did in uh, in, in Korea. So um, Denmark they launched the Sirius Patrol again in 1950, and uh, you can apply uh, if you are about th- uh, 20 to 30 years old. You have a good military record. All the same thing, you know, uh, if you want to join your special forces, uh, just in uh, this case, you're not allowed to be married and you're not allowed to have uh, kids because you're away for more than uh, two years in a row with no chance of uh, getting in touch with your wife and kids. So that's quite unique. You don't have, uh, you're not allowed to be married. What I also realized that is quite unique uh, when I talk to uh, guys from other countries, uh, special forces, is that you don't get to have any um, any vacation. You don't get to have any days off. You don't get to go to the bar on, on Friday night and tell stories about what you did last uh, week. So that's uh, also uh, uh, quite unique. And because you're only with uh, with one guy for more than uh, six months of the year, you have a quite intense uh, psychological uh, evaluation to see that you are that you're fit for these uh, hard mental conditions. It's, of course, uh, a very hard physical condition, as every special forces selection is, but also the it's very tough uh, mentally because uh, you're only with this uh, one guy for more than six months a year. The, um, the training program is uh, you have to uh, earn a, a two-year service before you can, two-year regular uh, service, you have to at least be a, a sergeant of rank before you can apply. And uh, then you undergo this uh, seven months uh, training program where you have to, aside from all the military skills, you also have to learn uh, everything else because uh, you're the only guys there. So you have to learn everything from being a, a, a fireman to uh, hunting to flying, communicating, cooking skills. You even have to be able to through your own uh, clothes. You have to know how to make electricity, how to make fresh water, you know, to how to uh, be a veterinarian so you can fix the dog and everything. And of course, you also need to uh, uh, get the big uh, doctor's degree so you can also do surgery on uh, your partner because, uh, for example, when we operate in Afghanistan with you guys, you you need to you operate with this uh, golden hour. You need to be in the hospital within the, this uh, golden hour. In the Northeast Greenland, if you have um, an accident, you, can, you have to stay alive yourself for maybe up to a week before someone can come and uh, rescue you because it's not possible to fly up there with helicopters you can only fly there with fixed wing uh, fixed wing airplanes and and usually when you have an accident it's uh, nowhere near an airspeed so uh, that's why you need to get this um, advanced medical surgery uh, training and of course you have some uh, arctic survival uh, training when we do the arctic survival training in uh, in greenland uh, there's no uh, really chance of, of bailing out because uh, <laughs> you ha- you still have to survive. You can quit, but you still have to survive to get back <laughs> to base and actually. Quit, uh, so so it's quite good. Uh, it's a quite good test uh, whether people have what it takes or, or not. So 
And the, uh, the Arctic uh, survival is a five-week uh, course. This, all the other courses, the seven-month program, takes place in, uh, mostly in Denmark. And then we have this uh, five- to six-week course in, in Greenland. And the, uh, the end test of this is that after these uh, five weeks of uh, training, you have to do a, a hundred kilometers test on uh, skis. And uh, you start by uh, taking your skis and your equipment and everything. And then you go through the ice. Maybe it's a minus uh, 35. And then you, uh, you make a hole in the ice and you, and you jump the, the student in the, in the water. So he's uh, completely cold. He has to take off all his clothes and then uh, take his emergency kit back and put on his emergency clothes. And then he has to walk uh, 100 kilometers. Oh. And it's not like when you see cross-country skiing on TV, uh, he has to make the tracks uh, himself. And he has to uh, to complete this uh, 100 kilometers within uh, within uh, 24 hours. And normally you don't you don't compete uh, if it's less than uh, minus 25. But uh, in the series patrol, we have to be able to compete uh, even if it's down to uh, minus 50. So it's a it's a rather tough uh, test. So after completing that test, it's a kind of uh, walk in the park to do a regular marathon. We do the uh, Copenhagen Marathon in, in the streets of Copenhagen. It's just like the New York Marathon, just that we uh, run in complete Arctic gear in um, jackets and uh, trousers and uh, boots. And then we pull the, the sleds, which is around uh, 100 kilos. So there's uh, six people taking turns on, uh, on pulling and pushing the, the sled. But this is, uh, this is good fun. There's... Uh, several hundred thousand spectators along the route so uh, it's a it's a really motivating thing and then when you get back to uh, to greenland in um, in august it looks like this because uh, this summer in um, in northeast greenland is about uh, one month so in in july you'll have ice on the water you'll have uh, snow on the mountains and then in august uh, everything is gone and then in uh, september it starts to uh, to snow again and this is a picture of uh, the serious uh, patrol base called uh, Danaborg. We only get the uh, supplies uh, once a year because it's not able to, uh, to sail the waters when they are frozen uh, over. So you have to go to the grocery shop uh, one time every year and get all your supplies for, uh, for one year. And there's, there's no PX or whatever you guys are used to. So one time per year. We also have a summer headquarter uh, where we put out all the supplies and provisions that we need for the sleds patrol in the in the winters. And some of these old uh, trappers, cabins, and, and huts, we use them for for depots to to stash our food for the uh, for the sleds patrol in the winters. In the northern part of uh, Greenland, there there's no animals, there's no nothing. It actually has the status of a desert because there's uh, nothing living up there. So therefore, there's no uh, trappers, huts, or cabins, or anything. So we, uh, we build them uh, ourselves. There's a big uh, landing strip in the northeast corner of Greenland also. So in case when you're flying uh, across uh, the Atlantic, you can uh, have the chance of uh, having an emergency landing on top of, uh, of Greenland. In August, it's, uh, it already starts to snow in the late of August. And then we, we start patrolling in the 1st of November. And um, 1st of November, when you are this high up on the, on the globe, uh, you are above the Arctic Circle, then uh, 1st of November is also the last day you'll see the sun above the uh, horizon. So 
day after, uh, 1st of November. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum. Restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. You can save an extra $10 when you spend 40 or more on a great selection of participating items. Just look for the signs and save at Baker's. The sun is uh, going down, wow. and you won't see the sun for uh, for more than three months. So this is also one of the reasons why you have to have this extensively uh, psychological evaluation. Because when you don't see the, the sun for for three months, then you can then you can tend to be uh, kind of uh, depressed. <laughs> but this uh, this is a picture taken in December when you have the full moon. Uh, so it's not the sun shining, it's actually the moon. Wow. So uh, we will uh, uh, change uh, the rhythm of the day. So we will be awake at night and uh, sleep during day because you have almost like uh, daylight when you have clear skies and, uh, and the full moon. On the other hand, when it's uh, December and it's overcast and there's no moon, it's just uh, completely blackout. So it's also kind of an experience to to go on skis and, and drive a, a dog sled in, in completely blackout. And, uh, of course, you have to get back for, uh, for Christmas and, uh, and New Year. And uh, usually uh, January is uh, really, really uh, bad weather. It's uh, like a lot of uh, snow and blizzards, uh, storms, like up to speeds up to 200 kilometers an hour, uh, 130 to 40 miles per hour. It's, uh, it's really, really uh, tough weather. So in January, for most uh, parts, we are staying at the station and uh, preparing the station for the winter season. And we also prepare the dogs, of course, uh, make sure that they get the right amount of food and we weigh them and we give them a bit of a pedicure so they are ready to, um, to rock again when we go on the uh, spring patrol. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When we start on the, uh, the Spring Patrol, we fly all the way up to Tule Air Base. It's almost uh, uh, next to Canada, uh, on the top of uh, Greenland. And we go there by this uh, Twin Otter airplane that uh, the Americans invented in the, in the Vietnam War. It's a super nice uh, short takeoff and landing aircraft. needs only to go up to like uh, 50 miles per hour before it's, uh, it's airborne and it can land everywhere. And you see here that it has, uh, instead of wheels, it has uh, skis. So we put the, the dogs and all our equipment inside this uh, twin order. And then we fly for uh, two days over to uh, Canada. And then we, uh, we land and you sit in the uh, airplane. You have like uh, 25 degrees centigrade inside the cabin and it's super nice. And then the uh, airplane is landing and it's uh, minus 48 degrees centigrade outside. 
So the airplane can only stop for a few minutes. It cannot uh, shut down its engines uh, because otherwise it would uh, freeze and get stuck in the snow. So just get out with the people, get out with the dogs, and then the airplane it takes off. And then you have uh, 3,500 kilometers uh, back to base, and it's uh, four and a half months of uh, patrolling just with uh, your one uh, colleague. So it's... Um, it's a rather tough moment when, when you see the airplane just uh, lifting off and it's completely silent. And then, you know, you won't see any other people for the next uh, four months. So you uh, <laughs> you start to think whether this is a, a really good idea or not. But uh, fortunately, <laughs> it's uh, so cold that you don't have time to stand there because you start to freeze. So it's uh, uh, get up and, and get your gear going and then uh, you're on your way already. This is a standard series uh, campsite. We use the uh, Prairie Wagon Tent model because it's uh, it's been tested for yeah uh, eighty years, and uh, it's it's the best tent for for these harsh conditions. So we put the tent up against the wind, and uh, you can see the the dogs lying there on the on the right side, and uh, on the inside uh, we have a small uh, apartment with the with the kitchen in the middle, and then you have uh, each uh, side of uh, your tent. And you take turns every day. Uh, one day you're the outside guy, and next day you're the inside guy. So the outside guy take care of the dogs and feed them, and the inside guy take care of uh, feeding uh, the two guys. And uh, and the food is just um, freeze dried, so it's uh, <laughs> it's it's not a place to go where if you're really hooked on uh, <laughs> on tasting different kinds of food, it it all uh, tastes the same, but. You need to have a, a, a serious amount of calories. Uh, you know, in the USA, you have on, on everything you buy, it says uh, on the backside, uh, everything is based on a 2,000 calorie diet. In uh, Northeast Greenland, you have to have 10,000 calories every day because it's uh, so uh, physically hard because you have to walk 45 kilometers in skis and you have to keep warm at the degrees down to minus 50. So 10,000 uh, calories per day. So you have to eat uh, a lot of Chocolate. On this picture, we are um, at the Cap Moist Jessup, the world's most uh, northern uh, position. Uh, and we have uh, the Danish flag is uh, standing on this position. And uh, we, of course, uh, change the flag uh, every time we get uh, by there. On the other side, it's just me uh, freezing my butt off. <laughs> and this here is... Uh, it's a set of uh, toes. It's not uh, mine, but from some guy who was also freezing his uh, toes. And you can see on, on the left side, it's a frostbite. Uh, how it looks after eight hours getting a frostbite, it's similar to get uh, to get burned. And and after two weeks, you can get uh, unlucky. But, but you got uh, completely uh, frostbite. That means that, that your skin and uh, your flesh will turn uh, black and it's completely dead. And, and you look at the amputee. Uh, luckily for this guy, he, he got to uh, to keep his toes. But this is uh, this is really serious business. Also because the danger of uh, freezing your feet is that uh, you will tend to, you'll feel that it's very very cold, and then suddenly you won't feel it anymore. Mm -hmm. and then you have two chances: either that you got uh, your warmth again and everything is good, otherwise that it's look like uh, in, the, in this picture. The dogs. Uh, they are super uh, cool and, and extremely tough. There's a dog uh, underneath this uh, snow. So if you have a blizzard up to uh, 100 miles per hour, the, the dogs will just lay like this with their nose under their tail. 
and uh, wait for for good weather to to come. Uh-huh. And uh, of course, uh, the the series that you say that a dog is a man's best friend, and of course, uh, in the series patrol, it's uh, it's even better. But make no mistake, they uh, they are related to the wolf. So if you have a a female dog that's ready to get uh, pregnant, then the, everybody is bleeding. Uh, every dog, they will they will fight to their death to be uh, able to be father of uh, some nice new puppies. And uh, that's one of the good things about the job. You get to uh, hang around with these small guys. Otherwise, it's uh, if you like to, to get out in nature, if you like really tough working conditions, if you like to be in a really good shape, this is uh, this is a place to be. And then, of course, you have a lot of uh, wildlife. This is uh, muskox. We have uh, walrus. This is uh, 1,500 kilos of pure flesh. It's <laughs> kind of an amazing animal. And of course, we also have uh, the polar bear, the king of the uh, king of the Arctic. And uh, northern lights. If uh, I mean, it's a it's a great adventure. Uh, we only see pictures of all the nice things. It's uh, not really uh, the there's not so much time to take pictures when uh, when everything is going haywire. So uh, that's the more or less very quick uh, one year uh, tour, and then the next year you will uh, do the same thing. So uh, it gives you a, a bit of an uh, an eye opener to uh, to what uh, the serious patrol is. So now we can have uh, all the questions that you uh, sure. would like to ask. Hey, Dave, would you like to go through the questions? Why? Uh, yeah. So we we have some. Uh, I mean, there's so much I want to ask you, but we have uh, some. You, Casper, uh, if you can just uh, unshare the screen so it goes back to normal. Oh and yes, of course. You can ask the questions. Uh, let's see here. Um, we have some questions from our viewers. Let me see. Um, uh, Richard Bowen, thank you very much for the donation. Uh, Alejandro Esteban, uh, thank you. What is the relationship like between members of the patrol and the dogs? When a dog retires, can veterans adopt them? And he said, tak skol. Tak skol? Skol? <laughs> yeah, skol. Skol, yeah. Cheers. <laughs> yeah, um, you cannot uh, adapt the dogs. The dogs, they will uh, run for, for five years. They will have uh, five seasons. And then, of course, uh, the, the best dogs, they will, uh, they will get uh, prolonged. So uh, maybe take a sixth uh, season. And then they'll get uh, the best dog will get pension. There are two more stations. The, the airfield that I mentioned on the top uh, east side of Greenland then we position uh, five to six dogs, so we have uh, spare parts in case uh, we lose uh, a dog, sure. and, and then they can stay there till they're like uh, seven or eight years old. But um, uh, the reason why, uh, how they retire is that the the guy who who owns the dog he also uh, he is also responsible for for putting them away. So that's uh, that's kind of a tough decision because. Uh, these dogs, they, they are like your best friends. Uh, it's, it's, it's the same if you have an EOD dog or whatever, a working dog you have. You, you get a really, really close uh, relationship. Also, when you only have uh, one colleague, uh, at a certain point in time, uh, you don't want to talk uh, more to this guy. So you only have the, the dog to talk to. And, and you get... Are, uh, so 
when when a dog uh, essentially reaches the end of its career, there, there's there's not much that can be done with it. I mean, you can't have feral dogs running around. You can't have a big ranch full of dogs. So there, there's nothing much that can be done with with it. Correct. Exactly. No, you have to uh, you have to take its life, and uh, it's it's kind of a it's a kind of a like a, a, a noble ceremony. Uh, it, it's like uh, yeah, I think some Indians would do the same thing. But it, you have a really really strong relationship with with your animals. But yeah. but uh, it, it's it's kind of a, a a strong thing when when you have to take a, a really good friend and you have to take him out. And you have to put him to rest. But so. So that's uh, that's a story that, that every serious guy can can tell about how how you have to do that. So it's it's uh, it's part of training. Yeah. It's part of the the, the job. Uh, sounds. I mean, it sounds challenging. I mean, I understand the logistics side of it, it and you know, it also sounds very challenging. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Uh, we're going to have to. Oh, he said we're going to have to go get some nuclear waste from Camp Century, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, some of the. Um, so some of the uh, the leftovers from this camp is actually trying is actually going to surface now because the glacier has moved so far mm -hmm. that, that some of this uh, debris from that city is actually going to get uh, visible within the, the next years. Uh, and Andrew also asked, "Is it possible to fail the sewing course? Can you get washed out of a serious <laughs> patrol because you can't sew?" No, you, you just have to wear some really, really ugly clothes. <laughs> uh, thank you, Alejandro. Uh, with the remote location and the wildlife, have you or other patrol members ever had encounters with polar bears? And did one ever try to give you a Coca-Cola, a Coke? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I definitely had encounters. I think I have seen uh, around uh, 20 polar bears. Uh, no one that uh, tried to give me a, a coke, but uh, a polar bear, they don't have any natural enemies. So they're super curious and they will uh, they will try and, and, and come and see whatever you have. We have uh, reached uh, some depots where the polar bear had uh, eaten everything. Uh, you know, you have maybe been your sledding for, for two weeks and you are really looking forward to get resupplied. Mm -hmm. Then this polar bear has just eaten everything. So, but, uh, so I haven't gotten coke from anyone, but I have put one on uh, on fire. Because uh, you, you, you can't scare a, a polar bear away uh, by making noise or, or giving them a warning shot. So we use a, a flare gun, and then you put this, uh, try to, to put the flare between you and, and the polar bear. Uh, but if you, if you shoot it up in the air and, and the flare goes behind the polar bear, then you are uh, in risk of, of uh, threatening towards you. So, so this polar bear got, got really close, and it got on his uh, back legs, and he stood up, he's like, four meters tall so we shot him right in the in the belly with this uh, flare gun and then uh, his fur caught on fire uh, and then he ran away <laughs> so no coke but a uh, burning polar bear that, what how what's your plans aside from the flare gun uh i mean obviously you have a, a plans for dealing with polar bears and you're not going to outrun one so uh, like I, what, we, we can shoot him but but uh, and it's it's not uh, legal to uh, in the earlier days it was legal to to shoot polar bears and the, the serious patrol would would shoot them and eat them uh, but now today it's a it's a national park so so all animals um, you're not allowed to 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 kill them 
but uh, you you can eventually have to to kill a, a polar bear or a muskox if if they will attack you. So so of course in, in that case you you will kill it. Are are muskox fairly aggressive, or is it only during certain like mating season, or how does that work with muskox? No, they, uh, they they can get really really uh, aggressive, and uh, the fun part is that that the um, the sled dog is uh, made for uh, it, it's a hunting dog. So so um, uh, the the way the Eskimos would hunt polar bears and muskox and everything else is that they would uh, drive around with the dog sled until the dogs would get the scent of the polar bear, and then the the Eskimo would just release the dogs, and and all the dogs would attack. The polar bear, all the muskox, and while the polar bear and the muskox is fighting uh, these uh, dogs, they, then the hunter could could run up there with his spear and, and kill it. So you can imagine if you have to kill a polar bear with just a, a spear that's two meters long, you have to get uh, really close. Wow. So uh, so even though we have the rifles today, the, the dogs they will attack if they see a polar bear or or a muskox, they will just go crazy and uh, and attack. And, and that's also what we saw on this. Uh, well, on the picture, that the, the dogs think it's uh, really, really funny, and the muskox they will turn like uh, with the back to back, and then they will attack uh, outside, and and they are they're pretty furious. And if you have a, a tag box and you shoot it, it will keep running, and it's like uh, four hundred kilos, and it's really uh, hard forehead. So uh, don't don't mess with those guys. Casper, what is this? I, I heard a story. I can't remember if this was something you told me or I read somewhere that the Sirius Patrol carries a rifle of a special caliber to shoot the polar bear if need be. Yeah, it's it, it, the caliber is uh, seven point six two, but it's an old uh, Remington uh, from nineteen seventeen because it's it's the only reliable rifle when it's down to minus uh, fifty. So so we never oil it, we never grease or anything, but but you can't shoot an automatic. Uh, we also use uh, the, the Glock uh, 20 millimeter, uh, 20 millimeter pistol for uh, for close protection. But in uh, in the minus 50, even though it's a 10 millimeter, you can risk that. But when you shoot it, you can't reload because uh, it's it's so cold. And and this old uh, Remington rifle, it, it will always work. The old uh, mouse or not, that that works anytime. It, so we still use that. Is it a bolt action? Yes. Wow. That works. Old reliable. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jake, thank you very much. And Jake, again, uh, hey, guys, thank you for uh, all your podcasts. I listened to Joel Struthers. Oh, French Foreign League. Yeah. Uh, and have decided I'm going in December of this year. Thanks for everything. Jake, good luck, man. And, and, yeah. and uh, please keep us updated. Uh, Andrew, uh, what? so we talked yeah, about we your weaponry. About he said, what kind of weaponry were you using? In addition to the Remington and, and the Glock, did... Uh, did you guys carry anything else uh, in flare guns? No, we don't. We don't carry anything else uh, on the on the patrols as of now. But we have uh, uh, depots with also uh, light machine guns and stuff like that. But it's uh, it's it's mainly for for patrolling. That's that's the armory that we that we carry. You know, being that it's uh, two men out there with a so remotely, is is there? I mean, you don't have like a hatchet force or a quick response force or any kind, even a long response force. If you were to, say, encounter a hostile force setting up on your shores, uh, or if you guys were under duress, what, 
what's the plan for retrieving you, for rescuing you, for you know engaging the enemy, things like that? Uh, the, the first plan is to observe and report, and and the next plan is to 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 try and and, and stay alive. Uh, in in the old days, of course, uh, they would hope that you would get to send some message home be, be, before <laughs> you would get killed or whatever. If you could escape, fine. If you couldn't, uh, too bad. Today, when you also have uh, satellite coverage and everything, but but you always need boots on ground to, to check out what's uh, what's going on. So that's the that's the main purpose because a, a, a two man army can't do much uh, when it comes to direct action, but right. they can uh, observe and report. And that's also why we are patrolling all the time to be able to distinguish between if, if something uh, something is going on, uh, because when, when nothing is supposed to be going on, you, you get a quite good sense of if, if something is uh, happening. Interesting. I, and maybe there are things you can't talk about, but have there been incidents over the years that you didn't mention in your slide presentation that, that were notable for your unit? Yeah, there, there's been some uh, some things uh, along the way also. Uh, you know, uh, the Russians had their nuclear submarines that can go in under the ice and all this. So, of course, there has been uh, activities and also because of the um, all of the wealth of the gold and diamonds and uh, and all kinds of minerals and that are in, minerals. in Greenland and, and everything. You talk about the geological uh, surroundings of Greenland, everything that's going on under the ice cave. So, of course, there's a lot of things uh, going on there. Interesting. Interesting. So, I mean, some of your job may be, uh, may apply to, like, pirate civilian organizations or, or looters as much as uh, foreign countries at times. Yeah, exactly. We we also have the uh, police authority in, in the area. So, in, in case anyone should uh, come up there, but it's mostly uh, scientists and and uh, mining companies, and uh, of course, some uh, some tourists in the summertime will come with a special Arctic cruise ship that we also have to uh, to engage and and make sure that they uh, yeah follow the, the rules. Interesting, um, Ian. Thank you very much. Uh, I understand that the topography of Greenland is essentially a bowl. Is that correct? If so, does it affect mobility and that you have to climb out? Yeah, we, we mainly uh, we mainly patrol uh, around the fjords on, on the coastline of uh, Greenland. As I said before, it's, uh, the ice cape is up to three kilometers thick. So, so at some places we have to go on the ice cape to, to cross uh, from one fjord to to the other. But that's uh, that's really dangerous. You have a lot of uh, crevasses, and you can fall down between in, in these uh, glacier crevasses. So, so it's uh, super dangerous to go up on the ice cape. So we are mostly on the the ice on the on the fjords but that can also be be dangerous because you can have what we call is bad ice and even though it's uh, minus 35 or minus 40 uh, the the current in the uh, in the ocean uh, can make sure that that the ice is, is rotten and you and you go through the ice so um and it, it's a really uh, it, it's a really cold adventure to go down there and uh, we have lost uh, colleagues uh, on, on that account Kessler, the job is extremely dangerous, and it's it's twelve men, correct? Twelve men. Yes. And yes. the the tour is about two years, just a little over two years. How often do they run selections, and then how do they manage when a man does get injured or or you know killed? How how do they handle his replacement if if selections are on a cycle to match people's tours? 
It's uh, uh, you have uh, six teams of uh, two men, uh, one old guy and one new guy. So you you turn every year you turn six people. So there's always uh, one old guy and one new guy coming. So we have selection uh, running every year, and so we keep continuing this loop. So the old man teaches the new guy, and next year he's the new guy, uh, the old guy teaching uh, a new guy. So you have a continuous uh, produ production of new people. And whenever someone get injured or even uh, get killed, uh, you will take someone from the year before or longer before and, and replace him with, the, with that guy. So they might, they might call somebody back to service after they've done their two years, two months? Yes. Okay. Yes, we also have a, a reserve unit where, where guys that are coming home, they are, they are still serving in, in the serious reserve unit. So you always have uh, extra guys to, uh, to take in. Okay. And how do those guys uh, adapt, if they have to, how do they adapt back into serious service after having the, the soft life of, <laughs> of a civilian in a reserve unit? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a, a strong experience. You can talk to these guys and they would say they are the best years in their life and everyone would more or less give their right arm to, to have the chance to go back there. So it's never a problem to, to find people to, to go back there. Okay, because I could never go back to like, being a <laughs> like I'm too soft. I would just I would fold instantly. Well, yeah. I, on that note, I'd be interested to ask you what is it like integrating back into Danish society after being out in the middle of nowhere with nobody except your one partner and uh, you know a dozen dogs. I mean, what's it like coming back home? Yeah, it's a it's it's a question we always get, and then. Uh, one way of answering the question is if you live uh, 25 years in, in New York City and you go away for two years and you come back, then it's easy to go back to the things you've done for, for 25 years. Sure. But uh, there's a lot of uh, things going on in, in your mind. Uh, for example, uh, when you're out there, everything is about surviving. Mm -hmm. and, and it means when you, you can't... Uh, not do anything it's not like oh, i'm too lazy today I, I don't want to fix my dogs i don't want to fix my equipment i don't want to uh, make sure my rifle is working because it's everything is about life and death so so you never uh, don't do anything so you have the best conscience ever you never have bad conscience because there's nothing that you can't do so when you lie on your sleeping bag uh, at night it, you have the best conscience ever i i, I never felt so uh, so good in my life because when you're in normal society, you can always, you know, uh, go online. You can always uh, write your mother. You can always uh, call your children. You can always do something. That's always something you can do. Up there, there's nothing you can do because all the things you have to do, you have to do. And, and there's nothing beside of that. Right. So so that's that's really great. I mean, it's, it's really, really basic man stuff. <laughs> you, you need to eat, sleep, and survive. That's, that's all it that is. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's it's really nice. It's really fun to to, to kind of be you know be wanting that. You, you think you have everything in society. We have heat. We have food. We have everything. But I mean, being out there where, where the only thing uh, that matters is that you actually survive and make it to the next day. That's that's kind of fascinating. I I, I kind of miss that, even though I like it uh, where it's hot and nice. Right, hot shower. Yeah, yeah. Um. With, with that, even though you can, you it's easy to go back to society because you've you've you're just returning to something. You no, know. is there a transition period for you where 
you're so used to the silence, the solitude with just one other person, things like that. And then you go back to noisy, bustling, uh, loud people and things like that. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Yeah, I think that, that that's, a, that's a very good question because uh, even though uh, the guys in the series patrol, they're, they're very much alike on some of the personal skills, mm -hmm. but on the other, they are very different. I mean, um, when my wife sees us uh, guys together, she's like, did you serve with this guy and this guy? You buy a, a nice piece of land out in the middle of nowhere and they will live there. Whereas uh, I live in the middle of the city and uh, transition completely into uh, a different life. So that's very different. And it's actually quite funny to see that uh, but it's also, I guess, uh, your experience with, with, with your units that you have uh, something that's in common, but then you're completely different uh, on all right. kinds of uh, mental issues. Right. Fascinating. Um, thank you, Andrew. Uh, is the dog population for the Sirius Patrol self-sustaining, or does Denmark have uh, veterinarians seeking out breeding dogs? Yeah, actually, both. We were, um, we were self-sustaining up to the point where we could get the serious dog to be his own, uh, its own race. But then uh, some uh, veterinarians and mathematicians were doing the math and saying that uh, that would not be good in about 25 years or something. So okay. then they decided not to make it a race and, and to, to start a, a breeding program to make sure that you will have all the, the right skills and abilities in, in the dogs. So, Interesting. so yeah, we were... We're self-sustainable now, but we get uh, eventually we get uh, dogs from Greenland. We have someone from uh, Canada. We have some dogs from Alaska, and that's all, all put into place so that we'll have the the best possible uh, breed of uh, dogs. So the serious dog was pretty much its own breed, but but because of inbreeding, it would have it would have caused burned, the genetic out, yeah. yeah the genetic issues. What what was the serious dog originally, or what breeds like? It, it was a, a mix of the uh, Alaskan Malamut, the, the, the big dog, and the Siberian Husky. So the Greenlandic uh, sled dog is, is uh, somewhere in between. But uh, in the earlier days, like say from the from the 90s and back, they would like to have really, really big dogs. Uh, whereas today in 2020, they would like to have more uh, but, but smaller dogs. So okay. the, the biggest dog I had in, uh, in my time was also the biggest dog that's been there was uh, 63 kilos so it's a pretty massive so, but today i think a male dog would be around uh, 40 45 kilos well somebody do the math and female around uh, yeah so uh, so what dogs do they bring in now to breed with those to to keep the line going but to also keep the traits you want do they bring in the siberian huskies and the malamutes still or do they add things to it yeah, no, no, only, only uh, like uh, sled dogs, but but from 
from different kennels, uh, depending on, on what kind of uh, skills or abilities they would like. Uh, that, that's a very important part of the um, sort of the logistics set up uh, around the Sirius Patrol. Uh, they take very good care of that with the dogs. Fascinating. Uh, and Andrew, thank you. Are there uh, are there soldiers who just seem like? Oh, are there soldiers who just seem to like the life up there and keep signing up for it? Do they allow you to stay on for more than the two year, two month tour? No, uh, you there. There are some positions where you can get an, an extra year or an extra two years, and you can. Uh, come home and become uh, uh, be the commander of the unit that will train you, uh, serious guys. I, I did that uh, myself, so that's an uh, that's an additional few years. But but that's uh, that's it, and and then it's uh, it's out again. Also to make sure that we still keep getting new guys. Yeah. But but some of them will uh, will move into to similar positions, join the um, the different uh, like the, the Navy SEALs or the Delta Force. They will they will join these uh, units where they can stay on for more years, or they will go on or start a civilian life uh, like this in, in in the wilderness and hunt polar bears and stuff like that, or, or go completely civilian and have a completely normal life. Do is there a, a I mean, do the majority of the guys? tend to get out of the military when, when they once they've done this tour or do the majority tend to stay in and pursue careers in the military no 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 they the majority leave because this is nothing like a regular military mm -hmm. service so it's it's kind of you you make all the decisions yourself so it's a if, if you want to continue, it will be in another special forces unit. It's not possible to go back into the regular military right. because it's too regulated when, mm -hmm. when you're used to this. So this, of course, there's, there's a few uh, now and then who, uh, who who stays in the military, but uh, but not in, in, let's say, regular positions. Yeah. That's fascinating. So the, uh... I, I stayed on for, for, uh, for more years because uh, I also like the... Uh, but the more uh, direct action side of it, uh, the uh, the tours in Afghanistan and Pakistan and all this, so that that's a completely different ballgame. So uh, it's it's still you know within the special forces community, and you you very much uh, making decisions yourself. It's not like a big unit where you have to do uh, what everybody else is telling you. So of course there's someone who's uh, who's staying in, but but most will will leave after this and, and get a civilian career. Could, uh, could you tell us about that then, uh, leaving Sirius Patrol and deploying to the Middle East? Yeah, you said from, uh, from minus 50 to uh, plus 50. <laughs> so, uh, uh, special operation force was in 100 degrees centigrade. So, um, yeah, but I think I kind of uh, guess it's more or less the same as, as everyone, the, the special atmosphere in, in, in the military and in the special forces community. And and I just like the, that, and I like uh, going abroad. I like to get new uh, adventures, and uh, and then of course uh, join the military, see the world, and and you also you always get to go places where <laughs> where you wouldn't go, like on a holiday and, and stuff like that. So I find that uh, really interesting, and you get to meet a lot of uh, cool people from uh, from around the world, all the the coalition forces that you that you get to meet, and uh, yeah, it, I find that really exciting. So you went from Sirius Patrol to the training school for a while, right? Did you go to the training? Didn't you? Yes. Say? And then, yeah. and then you went. Which special operations unit did you go into from there? Uh, I went to uh, to the Jaeger Corps as an um, 
the intelligence officer in that uh, intelligence branch. Okay. And then I went uh, also with the, the mission in uh, in Pakistan uh, for gathering intelligence with the with the United Nations. Also, they have a uh, I mean, India and Pakistan is still at war in the in Kashmir uh, right. region, and that was uh, also fantastic uh, scenery. And yeah, then the northern part of Pakistan is a quite interesting place, also. Yes, it is. Yeah. And I, I imagine your background in serious patrol must have played some, it must have helped you, even though it's a very different environment, that the mission was reconnaissance. Exactly. In the, actually, in, in, in Kashmir, on the, on the border between India and Pakistan, they have the world's highest uh, trenches. They, they are at war in the Sears Glaciers, which and, is 4,000 meters the, above sea level. Uh, the Cargill conflict. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, of course, that uh, experience came in handy uh, in, in those uh, harsh conditions up there as well. So, anybody who's been in the military, uh, in the American military, understand this. But when you were in the Sirius Patrol and then you moved to another unit, do you get some sort of badge or tab that says <laughs> that you were in the Sirius Patrol so you get to carry that around with you when you go other places? Yes, yes, you, you get that, uh, so you can flash that on your uniform, yeah. Very nice. But but the, but the problem with, the, with that is that, that uh, no one has ever seen it before, because uh, there's so few of us. So uh, so it's it's uh, very unlikely that someone will see it and know what it actually means. So uh, so they will have to ask you, well, what the fuck is that you're wearing there? <laughs> so, um, yeah, but, but you get to, to wear it. That's awesome. That's very cool. Um, and we're... What were the was the leadership of most of the units though like aware of what it was and your background and your skill set and things like that? Yeah, we have uh, we have like this uh, this poster that goes around in in every military unit. It shows the grade. You know, a, a general has so many stars and a colonel has so many and blah blah blah. And there's also uh, a picture of this uh, mark. But but no one has there's more likely to have seen a four star general than to have seen a guy with this mark on his uh, uniform. Because uh, there's there's so few of us who've been doing service in this unit, and even few of them uh, has continued their service in the military. Right. So it's um, yeah, essentially six men a year. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That's incredible. Um. So, uh, do you want to tell us about like you can tell us about any of the deployments you want if you know anything notable, and then we'll move on to Afghanistan because we'd love to hear about sure. that. Yeah, but you can just uh, ask whatever questions you want, and I'll uh, feel free to ask. What, uh, uh, well, what were your what were your favorite deployments with the Jaegers? Uh, it, it depends on how you, you you look at it, but I like the Afghanistan because we were in the in this uh, soft fusion cell, uh, part of the uh, the ISAF soft. In uh, I was posted in the, in uh, Kabul, and uh, the rest of my unit was down in uh, in the southern part of uh, Helmand. Okay, but also what was uh, uh, in this community, you can say, fun or cool about it is that that everybody else is is uh, seeing the news on TV. They they hear about Afghanistan, but they they don't know anything about it. You actually there, you know what it's like uh, in the middle of it. So, so that was kind of um, very interesting to get to behind the scenes and see what's actually uh, going on. Yeah, I, and did you find that your experience in Afghanistan? lined up with the way uh, the media was reporting it in Denmark? No, uh, not at all. And and it's like you, you get 
you get some information, but you can't really use it in the sense of that no one understands. You, you, we can talk about it because we understand it, but you can't, you can't come home from a deployment and, and try to tell you to your family or to your yeah. friends on anything. And you can't go and say, I'll tell you what it's really like. Uh, but, but they can't comprehend with it. So, so it's like you have a lot of knowledge, but you can't use it because no one is actually able able of uh, understanding it. So it's kind of frustrating, actually. See, if you were in America, you could make a living off of telling what people what it was like. Say again. I said, if you if you lived in America, you could make a living off telling people what it was like. He's making a Navy SEAL joke. Yeah. It's a SEAL joke. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. See, see, in 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 America, it's the same in Denmark. It's the same in Australia. It's the same in Italy. There's this tension between Army Special Operations and Navy Special Operations. It's every exactly. single country has it. It's just good fun. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, so what was, how was it different? Like, how was the media portraying Afghanistan? And then how did you experience, what was the difference in that? I think uh, uh, the way uh, the media portrays it is like, uh, when, you, when you talk about, in Denmark, when you talk about military operation, everybody thinks that, that the uh, war is something like this. They thought in, in the First World War or the Second World War, and like, you know, dropping bombs in cities, shooting women and children. Right. And, and you have to explain them that uh, uh, a, a war in, uh, in this uh, century is like uh, doing police business. Mm -hmm. you, you don't just uh, shoot people. You, you find the criminals and then you arrest them. That, that's what you're doing. And, and that's really impossible to, uh, to try and get people to understand. So, uh, so it, it, it's, um, yeah, it's kind of, uh, I think it's really strange that the, the politicians, the government does they try to do more to tell people what's actually uh, going on. Something like, you know, th there's no reason for you to go over there. Uh, no, not unless you want them to sit there and, and make terrorist bombs and then come and shoot them at you in the <laughs> while you're sleeping. Right. So it's, uh, I think that's also a part of the, uh, when we go into this talk about, about the veterans. I mean, you guys and me, we can sit here and talk about it, but, but you also have these uh, guys that are not, so well outspoken they can't uh, they can't tell this to anyone they don't know how to express themselves but so they can hear themselves uh, sounding really stupid when they try to explain what they were doing over there and and i feel kind of sorry for them i think that's uh, they, they deserve better than that sure sure i i think that a lot of times our media presents you know presents it the same way and and without the idea that you know some americans think that you know, and probably the, the, you're over there waging war against the local populace. And it's like, well, we're really not. We're actually in partnership with the local populace and the local government. And, and I, that was just... I, I think that European countries, and I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Casper. I think European countries also have a very different view of their militaries because of history, because of... Well, I mean, we can go on and on. But there's this long history of warfare in Europe that is, in many ways, you know, left a left a mark on the population. Exactly, and, and in, in uh, at least in Denmark, we don't have this uh, uh, Team America World Police. Uh, right, right. It's, it, yeah. it, it's like in in America, it's like you, you have to sort out whatever problem there is around the globe. In, in Denmark, it's just like uh, we can just stay home and and have fun and let someone else do it, and. Uh, and and that's also, I mean, 
uh, it's like people, they tend to forget that uh, freedom is not free. Uh, someone has to fight for freedom. And, and if you have a nice uh, uh, little paradise, I mean, someone else will come and take it if you don't right. defend it. So, but it's uh, it's it's kind of difficult to explain to the regular Danish population. It is, and it, I mean, it's hard it's hard to understand because, I, at least in America's you know case, like we haven't always made the best case for why we are somewhere. Yeah, you know, it, the idea of yes, you know, a bunch of barrel chested freedom fighters protecting everybody's freedoms, but sometimes it's fair to ask from whom, um, because it exactly, but. But there are ramifications, like you said, in Afghanistan, they were building, you know, they were creating terrorists, um, you know, and things get murky as, as time in a, goes in on. In a counterinsurgency. Yeah. yeah. How, how long were you there for? How long was a tour for you when you were with the Jaegers? Uh, it was uh, just five months, I think, in, uh, in Afghanistan there. Okay. And the longest. Yeah. Um, and speaking of which, since we're, we're on the topic... Um, I should plug for Thomas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys should go out and uh, take a look. It, it's available in English and Danish. Uh, Thomas Rathsack's book, Jaeger, um, it, which all about Danish Army special operations, and uh, really, really good book. Really nice guy. You guys should take a look for that if you want to know more about Danish soft. Now, when you uh, when you said that you can't really explain to people, how is like in uh, how is the Danish the general population the attitude? towards the military, towards you as a veteran? Um. Uh, I, I always say I never use the phrase uh, veteran Denmark because I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a wrong phrase when you have a guy that's uh, 22 years old, he comes back from Iraq or from Afghanistan and he's uh, ready to go uh, do whatever and then people call him a veteran. And I, like He's a 22-year-old warrior. He's not a veteran. He's, he's an ex-military guy. So, so we kind of get this picture that it, that veterans is like it's almost like Tom Cruise Fourth of July. It's like someone you should feel sorry for. Interesting. Uh, and and I try to tell a story that uh, of course there's this one percent uh, or, or two that it's uh, that didn't came out so well, but the ninety eight percent others they get uh, they come out much stronger. They get a lot of experience. They get a lot of new skills that they can use. They are. Uh, they are an asset for society, but but we always keep hearing about these uh, one or two percent. That's uh, that's a problem. So it's uh, at least in Denmark, it's it's, it's very divided. I mean, uh, in in business life, uh, you have a high standard if if you are an ex-military or an officer, you are really valuable. But in the other part of society, I mean, people will not almost talk to you if you are a soldier because oh, this is too bad, and you must be sick. Or, How are you? Or, Right. So I think that's it. It's it's very diversified. Interesting. Uh, and is there uh, medical care for former soldiers in in uh, in Denmark? Is there like a, a system or a process for that? Yeah, and you can say in, in Denmark there's a there's a system for everybody. For everybody, uh, okay. We're we're a socialist democratic country, so uh, so we don't have the problems you you have in in the U.S. So so we don't have. Uh, not a special thing for for veterans because we we have the same security net for for everybody, so um, so that's uh, s- some guys will will look at America and say, oh, they have these special programs for for veterans. They saying, yes, but you don't have special programs for anyone. Right. We we have that in in uh, in, in Denmark, so that's a uh, that's a very different. 
But uh, on the other hand, you don't have anyone in Denmark coming up and say uh, thank you for your service. Right. Right. Uh, you can't get uh, a free dinner at Applebee's on Veterans Day. No, no, no. We don't get free parking. I when I was in the, in Hawaii and uh, we went to um, yeah uh, to Pearl Harbor and this is you know uh, free parking for 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 veterans in this yeah. area. We don't have any of that in. Uh, in did, did you did you park there, Casper? Oh no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I parked next to it to see who was parking there. <laughs> That's uh, that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, and I guess that makes sense. You don't need a VA if you have, you know, medicine that covers everybody. So what did, what did you decide to do after your military career? I mean, you had this uh, really, honestly, an amazing career for such a small, unique unit in serious patrol, then moving on to being their head trainer, then getting to um, go and serve as an intelligence officer with the Jaeger Corps. I, that's super cool. What 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 came next for you? What 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 does Casper decide to do after the military? Uh, I was doing some uh, leadership program, you know, uh, training civilian leaders all all the, the skills and and uh, most importantly the mindset. And uh, while doing that, I was doing that for for the biggest uh, medical company we have in Denmark, Novo. And uh, I was sitting with this uh, research uh, scientists unit. There were twelve scientists, super clever, everybody. And uh, I was talking about, you know, mindset and skills and everybody. Uh, and they were telling, where do you know this from? Who taught you this? I say, you know, uh, life taught me this. Hey, they give a flying fuck about that. They, they needed uh, some professors. You know, you, we don't trust you if you don't go to university. And then I, I realized they, they, they had a point because uh, everything I said was, of course, right. But it was just something that I said I need right. to get it verified so i decided okay i need to go to university i need to get a degree and then actually uh, my, my plan was to go to uh, to harvard to get an mba because i thought that was kind of you know uh, something that everybody uh, would know of but uh, by coincidence i ended up studying the psychology in um, the most uh, left-wing university we have in uh, in, in denmark uh, if, if if you have harvard on this side and then you have this university uh, as far as way as, as you can come but it was uh, it was uh, the best uh, thing ever because it's uh, actually really super easy to to be a leader or be a manager in in a special forces unit because the, the level of motivation is yeah. super high yeah. right i mean uh, uh, almost everybody can do that because if, if you're a manager in a basic training or a selection program you say get down there and give me 1000 push-ups they will do it because they are motivated from within, but when you need to go out and, and motivate people, uh, regular people, you know, uh, the guy with the copying machine, uh, uh, the women at Applebee's, what's motivating them? That's that's a completely different uh, mind game. Right. So uh, I really learned a lot from that uh, psychology study, also because there was a lot of uh, training exercises where we have to do it with each other. Uh, and and there was a lot of uh, women in 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 this class, and and that's the only thing there was there wasn't in any of my units. <laughs> so they they have a completely different mindset. So that was a very important uh, lesson for me. So it kind of completed the the circle for me. And also in in, in the, when I work as a management consultant, if you come out to a, to a business with your military background, 
uh, instantly someone will sit like this and say, uh, I don't care about the military. This is not the military. It doesn't work here. But if you come out and you present yourself as a psychologist, oh, then someone will say, oh, this is very interesting. And then some of the guys will say, I don't want this crap. And then you can pull out the, the military story. So you right. kind of <laughs> can direct to, to everybody. Right. So it's uh, super useful. Did you, did you, uh, did they, maybe you didn't even tell them, but did people treat, because it was a left-wing university, did they treat you differently because you had been in the military? No, the, the professors thought it was uh, super fun because uh, they, they on, on all these classes, they always uh, tried to get uh, some with military background because it would give some very good discussion in, in, uh, in, in these exercises where you were supposed to have discussions. Because uh, you come in with a completely different background, you uh, completely different approach, and that was uh, very good, very good for the for the learning for the whole group. Yeah, it's great. I, I mean, real diversity of thought. I, I have a question that comes to mind now, knowing that you know you have a degree in psychology, and also served in Jaeger Patrol, or. Uh, you know, during this time frame, this period in history, where people are socially isolated, how did you deal with that psychologically? Yeah, there's no problem. I mean, we're not really isolated when when you compare. When I was in in Pakistan, it was in 2005. It was during the Muhammad crisis. You know, where they were burning the Danish flag in in the Middle East. No less. I was I was living. In, in the in the most uh, Islamic uh, part of the world, uh, and there you were isolated because uh, right outside the door they were shouting uh, "death over Denmark" and burning the flag and everything. <laughs> there was an actual threat if you would go outside. I mean, here you're you're isolated, but you can you can walk down the store and you can buy whatever you want. You can sit and watch Netflix, and there's no real threat. So, it, of course, like you also experience when, when people are talking about tough times and when things really, really uh, gay, uh, go AWOL, you say like, okay, uh, come on. I mean, <laughs> it's not really that bad. And that's also uh, when I coach, you know, um, uh, professional sports uh, people. They always say, you know, oh, this is so tough. This is so hard. And, and you have to put that into perspective. Right. Uh, I was training some athletes for the Olympics in uh, Rio, and, and they were like, ah, oh, Casper, it's not so easy, you know, you have to travel all the way to Brazil, and you have to train for this for four years, and maybe you are out in the first round, and this is really, really, really tough. And I was like, <laughs> so, so, the, so the shittiest thing in your life is you have to go to Rio in Brazil, and you have to do whatever sport you're doing for, for five minutes, and then you can kick out, and then you can sit for, for two weeks, uh, sip drinks with uh, with straw uh, in the, in the sun. That's that's your worst case scenario. L- let me show you a worst case scenario. Uh, and then they will be kind of embarrassed because you know you show them a, a coffin with a flag on top of. I see th- this is how it looks when you lose in my sport. Right. So so it's not there's nothing coming back next four years or anything. It's it's just over. That is shitty. Sitting on the beach in Rio sipping drinks. That's not really shitty. Right. right. Yeah. So, so you you can you can work uh, with with the mindset, and then and and the mindset of uh, regular people, normal people, is is completely different from the from the mindset uh, that uh, we know of. Yeah, I call it the special forces mindset. You know, and how like going through you know becoming a psychologist at this university. How did you 
obviously you have to have some empathy for people, right? You, you can't just be like a drill sergeant, like, oh, you know, you don't know what suffering is. How, how do you empathize with them? And then how do you sort of reframe their sense of suffering? Yeah, actually, it's a very good question because um, uh, the, one of the things that really inspired me to go into the military in the first place was the movie Officer and Gentleman uh -huh. uh, from the 70s with uh, Richard Gere. Yeah, uh, but, but, but the drill sergeant actually has a lot of empathy in that movie. Uh, you know, he, he starts by lining them up and being a, a real asshole, but, but he still has empathy in the end. And that's, that's one of the most misunderstood things about the military. People think that it's just a drill sergeant, you know, shouting at someone. They, they don't see the, the side with the empathy. You, you need really to take care of your soldiers because mm -hmm. if you don't have your soldiers... You, you don't have anything. You, you can't win a war on your own. You really need uh, to take care of your men. But you also need to make sure that, that your men perform at the best level possible. And that's what people, they, they tend to, to misunderstand. But when, I, uh, when I get the new guys into my unit, they would not love me uh, when they were under my command in the beginning. But afterwards... I always say, if I write on Facebook today, I need to go to Afghanistan on Tuesday. I need ten people. The salary is shitty. You won't. You might not come home. Everybody, anyone in, want to come? And I have several hundred people saying, "Sign me up." Right. <laughs> but 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 they didn't like me when they first met me. They thought I was a psychopath or an asshole or whatever. But but they survived. Right. So I mean, now they're happy. And and when you stand uh, with the parents of these uh, young kids and you're taking them to, to Greenland or wherever you're taking them and you look in the mother's eyes and say, I'll take good care of your son. Right. Uh, this means that I have to train him so hard that uh, it's most likely that he'll get out of this alive. Right. So that's actually a, a very important aspect that I spend a lot of time trying to, to tell people that, that the military is not about breaking people down. It's about building them up. Right. But from an outsider, it can look like you break him down because they're, they're crying and they're sweating. And, but you have to find out where the limits are. And then you show them that even though they met their limits, you still love them. You show empathy for them. They still have a place in, in, the, in the group, in your unit. That's right. really strong. And yeah, I think that's some of the things that we miss. A uh, really interesting documentary that I saw, I think it was on Netflix. Um, I think it's called Armadillo, about a Danish infantry platoon. Yeah. Really good, really interesting. I mean, Denmark, of course, is a very small country, very small military, but a very, a very professionalized military also. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, we're we completely different from, from your huge military uh, machine, but uh, we have a, a super cool military also because in, in Denmark, education is for free. So, so the level of education for, for privates in the Danish army is, is really, really high. I mean, uh, the, the guy with the lowest rank, uh, uh, the minimum education, military-wise, he's, he's still kind of uh, clever and able to make his own decisions, and that makes a, a very unique unit. Is uh, it, What's the average age of somebody who enters service in Denmark? Are they... Because like in the U.S., it tends to be around 18. Yeah. But do, do people in Denmark tend to go to college first and then into the military? No, it's it's uh, it's uh, mostly like in uh, nineteen twenty years of age when they joined the military. Okay, okay. Out of curiosity, because you know we've talked about isolation and we've talked about psychology. In that 
seven month training that you did uh, for Sirius Patrol, did they did they teach you things like conflict resolution or you know you're going to be out with one person for four months and, and nobody else? Did they teach you how, how do you how do you not kill your sled yeah, buddy? Yeah, did they teach you interpersonal yeah. skills or conflict resolution or anything like that? Yeah, that's that's a lot of uh, a lot of training in that. Uh, first of all, there's also it's it's a major part of the selection program. You you get a really thorough uh, psychoanalysis to make sure that 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 you are. Your level in the beginning is, is, is very high, and then, of course, you get the training on top of that. Okay. Wow. And did you have to use any of those conflict resolution skills when you were in Serious Patrol? Yeah, I, I developed what I call the, 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 the Serious Program for Cooperation. It's like, uh, we call it actually the, the nuclear model. It it uh, it was inspired me when I was in India and Pakistan. You know, they, they both have uh, nuclear weapons because um, it's like if if you are uh, you can always use it in a relationship with your wife or anybody else. If you say that the total amount of decision that has to be made is a hundred percent, in ninety five percent of the times you just do whatever he wants or she wants. Then in the four percent of the times you have to say I I, I want to do this or we could also do that. We have to. You have to uh, tell what's on your mind, mm -hmm. but only in one percent of the time you can have your way. But 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 this is like having a nuclear bomb. If you fire yours, they will fire back because in that one time uh, you can make the decision saying, "I want to move to California." That's your decision. Then your wife can say, uh, "Okay, if that's what you want, uh, I want to move back." So now you both spend your your one uh, time off. This means that <clears throat> there is no way of of having your way, there is only one way of negotiation. Right. And you have to be really, really um, apparent if, if there's something that's really important for you. Because if it's not important for you, don't say it. If it's mm -hmm. really important, you have to say it. Because right. otherwise, your, your friend or your colleague or your wife, they can't know that it's important for you. I had uh, one time with my colleague, you know, uh, when he was uh, staring in his pot, his mother taught him to do it in, in the numbers of eight. So he would turn like, like an eight and he would uh, hack the spoon on the side of the pot like shh, shh, and it was like uh, driving me mad after like uh, two months. And then I said, you know, after spending two weeks uh, trying to you know, should I tell it or should I not tell it? Because if I told him this, he would definitely tell me something that he was right. tired of. And so then uh, I, I manned up one night and said, uh, hey, Henrik, could you please uh, stop doing that? Uh, yes, of course. And I said, really? Yes. Why did you just say that before? Right. Uh, I, I thought it was important for you. No, no, no. I just had to do it like whatever. So so it's, it's kind of funny how your brain messes around with you. Sure. And those are probably really important lessons just to carry on with life that you have to ask for what you want. Otherwise, there's no way you're going to get it. Exactly. But at the same time, you know, be aware of, is it always your way or should we maybe go right, somewhere right, else's right. way? So, so the, but that's, that's all about the leadership. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not having your way. It's about reaching whatever goal. And if uh, the goal is cooperation or the goal is to get back safe to base, then it's uh, what you do. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's a team effort, too. Uh, exactly. In, in the context of, you know, uh, military context or in serious patrol, it's like, you know, if your buddy wants to go in the wrong direction, you're like, hey, we're going to ride right down a crevasse and die. Like, you have to speak up. You have to say something. Exactly. 
Out of curiosity, uh, the time frame that you were in Sirius Patrol, I don't know if you guys were using GPSs, if, if you had that technology. I, like, I don't know the time frame, but we're, how are you navigating point to point over such long periods of time with in the no real landmarks? Yeah, that, that was a good question because at that time, uh, it was in the in the beginning of the GPS, you know, the really, really right. big one with the uh, antenna yeah, on top yeah. of the uh, U.S. military spec model. And, and uh, then we had some old aeronautical charts but there could be up to uh, 40 miles difference if you took a waypoint to a known decision and the waypoint to another known uh, location there could be up to 40 kilometers difference between these two positions wow. so of course wow. the gps was right but but the the charts the maps were not gps true i'll just get a, a charger for yeah, my computer sure, sure. one second Guys, this is a good time to like, share, and subscribe to the channel. And uh, check us out on Patreon also. The link is down in the description if you want to get access to the bonus segments. $1 a month will get you access to amazing <laughs> content in the bonus sections. If you want to get more, if you have it, we welcome it. We pay our rent. We do all the stuff. But uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, and there's also the merch down in the description. I'm looking for the coffee mugs. Uh, I, I think I'm remiss in that I don't have them here, but that's okay. Well, all right, so what's up, Casper? What do you got for us? Whatever you want. <laughs> uh, you said you have the chart? Uh, were you yeah. Uh, at, at that time, the, the charts were not uh, GPS true. It was just some old uh, photos, some aeronautical charts. So, so you could... Uh, you could have to make the decision to go uh, on the eastern side of an island or on the western side of the island. There would be a 40 kilometers difference between those. So, so that was kind of uh, uh, very interesting at those times. But today, of course, every map is the GPS through and it's, uh, you can pinpoint exactly uh, right. where you are. But at that time, it was kind of uh, difficult. And also when you were sledging in a, in a blizzard, you wouldn't even be able to see your own skis. It was a clip, uh, completely white out. And then it will also be uh, very exciting to see uh, where you ended up. And we have examples of uh, people um, going to a hut and they would put up the tent. And when they woke up the next morning, they would see that the tent is like two meters uh, from the hut. But it's completely impossible to see. <laughs> wow. But also just a, just a thing like uh, going uh, on a toilet in, in a blizzard. I mean, uh, you, you can't go anywhere. Uh, you have to, <laughs> to, to hold on to the sleds because if, if, you, if you go away just one meter, and you think you're going a straight line this way and it right. goes straight line back, but you deviate just a few degrees, then, then you'll never hit it and, and you'll be lost. Be, before we, the chart, uh, when you, you showed us that picture of, of, of total blackout conditions, like, like in December, when yeah. the sun would not rise, but you, you guys still had to move, right? You still had to navigate. Yes. How did you navigate in pitch black? Again, with no real landmarks. Uh, you'll, you'll make a, a, a course on your uh, compass and, and you'll decide to go like uh, 40 degrees or like 120 degrees and then you'll hold uh, try and hold the, the, the compass course and, and just uh, kind of uh, every hour make sure uh, try to take a GPS position see wh where you ended up. 
So, uh, yeah, it, it was uh, tough navigating in, in the good old days. Are, are the dogs pretty, uh, you know, sense aware where if you point them in a, in a cardinal direction or in a compass direction that they will kind of stay online? Yeah, the, the, the good dogs would do that. But in, in, uh, in, in tough conditions, uh, we would walk in front. So, so one guy would be uh, walking next to the sled and, and one guy would be walking okay. in, in front. So he will, he'll be leading the way. Uh, and and the dogs will follow his uh, his tracks. Also, if we have like a very soft snow, if we have a really deep snow, uh, then you have to to walk to make a path for the dogs to, because they could almost be swimming. If we have so much snow that the dogs uh, would almost be swimming in the, in the snow, so we have to to make a, a path for them to walk in. Did you guys, because you were moving so much and skiing, and you guys weren't riding the sled? That was more for supplies, right? You were. Yes. You were on cross-country skis. Did you at that point? Did you ever get tired, or were you just such a like physical machine at that point in time, where moving, you know, I don't know how many kilometers a day was just what you did. Now it, uh, yeah, uh, you you get in really really good physical conditions, but I mean. Uh, it was not the distance; it was uh, conditions. I mean, okay. you could uh, you could really, really struggle for twelve hours and have only moved like uh, eight hundred meters. Uh, the worst conditions ever is if you have uh, you have the ice is like maybe three meters thick, but then you will have like uh, one meter of uh, powder snow on top, uh-huh. and and that's very uh, warm because there's so much air covered in the the snow, so some of the uh, the water on the top of the ice will melt. So this means you have one meter of snow, then you have uh, ten centimeters of uh, water, wow. and then you have the ice. So uh, so you will get completely uh, wet uh, feet, and when you uh, when you lift your skis up against all the snow, that will freeze onto this uh, wet ski, and you will have like your your skis will weigh like five kilos, and and your toes are completely uh, wet and and frosty, and it's I mean that is. Uh, psychopath conditions i mean uh, you are ready to shoot your dogs and everybody else and, and you struggle for 12 hours and you can turn around and you can see where you camped last night and that that i mean uh, in days like this you you think where that we, we're gonna get killed out here because we can absolutely not survive in this I, or in no please. Or on the top of uh, greenland just uh, i showed you the flag uh, on the northern uh, most northern part of the world in cap most years we had minus 50 for, for like five days, we were moving like uh, 12 hours a struggle would take us one to two kilometers. And we had ate all our food. We had ate uh, everything. Uh, there was not anything we could do. And uh, we tried to call for help, but, uh, but the, the weather was so bad that no airplane could uh, drop us any supplies. And then, of course, we will, uh, we will cut down on supplies. But if you don't get enough uh, calories, you don't have any energy, you have to cut supplies for the dog. Then they don't have any energy. And you can just say that. <laughs> That uh, with with the less energy, you, you go even shorter distance, and then it takes you even longer to get to your uh, supplies. So that's so that was uh, mental tough. Uh, so did you guys just have to wait it out until you could get supplies, or how how did that? Situation? Yeah, but the problem about uh, waiting is uh, even waiting costs you uh, energy. So sure. you only have the the this amount of supplies. So so if you take a day in your sleeping bag, you still need to eat. And then you have even less calories to, to get moving. Right. We always have uh, like 50% extra uh, on the sled. But if you came, come across, you know, tough conditions, uh, tough weather, 
then uh, you you start to cut your rations and uh, eventually you you run out. That's but it turned out luckily. I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, I, I just to give viewers some perspective in in terms of when we're talking about land navigation and 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 no terrain features. Do you know what an average leg is on a star course? I. Uh, I mean, it depends on which course, but I mean, like when me and you went through Ranger Selection, eight hundred to a thousand meters. Okay, and then, you know about like SF, a few, uh, six kilometers. Okay, so okay, so uh, just under four miles, right? Six kilometers. So yeah. in 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 a lot of special operations selections. Uh, land navigation is part of the selection, and you have to run a star course or, or a land navigation course moving from point to point. But you're usually in an area that has terrain features that you can identify on a map, and and you're moving maybe you know four or five miles, and there's a time limit. Now, you're talking about day after day after day of no terrain features because you use terrain features on a map to to help moving 800 meters a day to the point where like casper just said you can look backwards and see your campsite that you just left yeah and and even on a good day if the weather is good about how how far could you guys move on a good day a, a good day would be like uh, 45 kilometers mm-hmm. so uh, uh what is that nine 27 miles 27 miles on a good day uh, eight, 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 800 meters on a bad day. Yeah, navigating yeah. with no... Tr- it, it's just amazing to me yeah. that every and, uh, day uh, was like a selection for you guys, but that was your normal means of living. Yeah, that, that, that's, uh, that's also what's kind of difference between the Sirius Patrol and, and all other units. I mean, we, you know, other units, when you went... If you go to the selection, then it starts to be much nicer on the other side. You get your vehicles, you get your... Right. Airlift, you get it's it's so much right. nice. Everything is it's is good. good life. So yeah. if you can see it through selection, then you are home free more or less. In, <laughs> in, in serious, it, it it's the same. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, you you pass selection, but you still have to survive. I mean, it, it's not going to be any easier. Right now, I mean, comes... it's it, it's it, when it's a blizzard uh, and it's minus fifty. It's just as cold if you're in a selection program or if you pass. So. <laughs> So it's it's a very different. Let's uh, let's round it out with one last question before we go into the bonus segment here. Um, Alex wants to ask, what was the coldest it ever got in Greenland, and why does Greenland hold hold for geo or what does it Greenland hold for geopolitics in the near future? What can the U.S. military learn from Denmark? Oh yeah, that's a lot of good questions. Uh, the, the coldest thing we had was uh, minus fifty degrees centigrade. And that was because our uh, thermometer couldn't go uh, below that. I mean, that is really, really shitty cold. It's so cold that if you touch anything with your bare hands, it will stick uh, to to the moist on your hands. And, and you can barely breathe because uh, the air is so cold that your body needs to use a lot of energy because before it can send it out in, in the lungs. So everything is kind of moving in slow motion when it's uh, when it's so cold. Then uh, we come to the part with um, with Greenland, where it should be uh, geopolitical. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Mr. Trump wants to buy uh, Greenland because it was a nice uh, defense line for for America. And of course, uh, the Russians think uh, the same. There's a lot of uh, minerals and stuff in in Greenland, so of course they will have an, uh, a big importance. 
I try to tell the Danish politicians they should be better at uh, doing the marketing uh, within NATO, saying that uh, we command this uh, big uh, white thing on top of the world, so this should give us some credit down in, in, in NATO, because if we do this uh, right, it's much more important than all the other military units combined, because you, you can't barely see Denmark on, on a globe, but you can definitely see uh, Greenland. Right. So it is a very important uh, part in, in the future. I, I would just add to that, Casper, uh, point out that there, from an American perspective, part of the geopolitical relevance of Greenland and um, also Alaska and the Aleutian Islands is, uh, you know, I think we've talked about the dew line, um, the early detection systems, uh, having a reconnaissance role, keeping tabs on what the Russians are up to in that area. Uh, but also in the outbreak of an outright war, there would be the concern that a foreign power would seize Greenland, could seize Alaska, or and use those as staging grounds to then come down into the continental United States uh, and use that to exactly. attack us. So that that's really the uh, if you come down to like a World War Three type scenario, that's the geopolitical relevance of Greenland. Um, on top of like you said, there's rare earth minerals there and, and everything else. I mean, it's it's it is an important spot on the map. Exactly. That, that's that's uh, some high ground you want to to conquer if you uh, if you're planning on your third world war. Sure, uh, we actually have a couple other questions uh, up top that kind of sec by uh, Ian. Thank you. Uh, any foreign nationals ever joined Sirius? Uh, Norwegians or Finns, maybe? Yeah, we have uh, Norwegians and uh, people from Iceland and from the Faroe Islands have uh, have joined also, but it. Uh, they, they of course have some kind of relation to uh, to Denmark, and also native people from Greenland has uh, has joined the, the military. Actually, there was in in the first uh, patrol back in uh, 1941. It uh, consists of uh, people from Norway, Denmark, and Greenland. Oh, cool! So, so it's kind of one of the first multinational brigades. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, T-Bar, thank you. Did Casper ever fight or train with the Danish Air Force? I worked with them deployed, and they were exceptionally skilled and professional. Yes, uh, we work a lot with them, also because we get the uh, we get supply drops uh, if if possible, for both from the C-130 and also from from other types of uh, aircraft. So yeah, we we work together with them. Uh. Uh, BPA Izzy, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Uh, Alex, uh, thank you. What was the coldest? Oh, it, yes, that one. Oh, you got that one. Okay. Um, okay, cool. That's, yeah. that's it. Casper, um, any final thoughts? Anything to round this out before we go into the bonus segment um, that you'd like to put out there? No, um, I, I can't really think of it. I think we got the uh, all the way around it. So You know... I just want to say, Casper, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. Like, this is such a unique, uh, kind of like once in a lifetime type of view to have the opportunity to talk to somebody who served in in this unit and to hear about these experiences. And I'm not kidding when I, I think this is maybe the most unique special operations unit out there. Yeah, we've been um, we're trying to set up some uh, some cooperations with some of the guys from. Uh from America and also from England and Germany and some of the other countries because they they tend to think the same and as you said if if there should be a, some kind of a, a conflict in in the future Greenland is so big that uh, 
we need more guys there. So more guys need to be prepared for this kind of uh, yeah environment. And, and the the United States is trying to because we understand the importance of the Arctic, or we're, we, finally we have come to understand the importance of the Arctic. We're trying to train our soldiers to better fight there. And America is never going to really be the experts on Arctic warfare. We yeah. need to go. We need to look at the Danes. We need to look at the Norwegians. We need to look at the Canadians. Those are the guys who really know what they're doing. Um, so that, it's just the again the importance of a unit like Sirius Patrol. Um, and you know we have a lot we can learn from them. Yeah, one one big difference from uh, from Sirius and 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 the Canadians and. Uh, Swedish and the Norwegians is that there are no trees in Greenland. Yeah. So so that's a, that's a really really huge difference because when we go on exercises in in, in Norway, the, the trees play a really important role in terms of you know uh, getting firewood and, mm -hmm. and all right. kinds of things. You you can uh, build Covering a cabin out of wood. You can do all kinds of shit with wood. But when you don't have any trees, it's a completely different ball game. Yeah. Casper, are you working on any kind of, uh, do you have a book in the works at all about your military experience or your, your leadership? Your Anything uh, you want to uh, direct people to? Yeah. yeah. Not at the moment, but uh, when I write my book, I will come back to you and ask for a five minutes commercial. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. Uh, you, we'll, we'll, give you another, we'll give you another whole show to, to plug your book. Yeah. This yeah. is fascinating. We'd be happy to. Um, so, guys, uh, please make sure that you like the video, leave us a comment, subscribe to the channel if you haven't already, hit that bell icon, and select all notifications so you get notified the next time we go live. Uh, next episode, next Friday, we are going to have Chris Hoare on the show. He is the son of Mad Mike Hoare, the infamous Congo mercenary, uh, Five Commando, way back in the 1960s. And he wrote a biography about his dad. I'm actually reading it right now. We're going to have him on the show next Friday to talk all about it. It's, it's going to be super cool. So hope you'll join us then. Casper, thank you again. Yeah. We we really appreciate it. We appreciate you taking this time with with us and and our audience. Thank you, guys. All right. See you next time. Yeah. See you. Okay. That's it. We're out. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.